Hello, this is Colby Herschel. And Carly Sheendrum. And today is a very special day for us here at the studio. It is local Carly Sheendrum's birthday. <laughs> so we decided to watch one of her favorite animated movies, which I'll confess is one of mine too. We watched Pixar's Ratatouille, which is actually our first foray into the Pixar universe. Is that right? It is, yeah. We haven't done any Pixar yet, and we weren't... I wasn't going to be so selfish as to watch one of my favorites, but when it came the opportunity to do a Pixar, you know, start on a positive note. Start with one we love. Exactly. <laughs> of, um, and, and to be honest, most of Pixar's catalog is pretty light on heavy criticism. They don't really have any... I mean, not that I can think off the top of my head that, like, are, like, glaringly bad. Well, I've actually never seen Cars 2, but that oh, well, often gets the brunt of the, um, of the argument there. And in that, I feel like, is just in, like, plot. <laughs> like, yes. I think it's just people were like, you're gonna make another movie about talking cars. And, and planes. Planes was another one they did. Well, Planes wasn't technically Pixar. They That was relegated to Disney Toon Studios, who did uh, the DuckTales movie. There we go. So, <laughs> as far as general knowledge goes, without getting too deep into it, Pixar doesn't have a terrible track record. Um, but, that being said, Ratatouille is one of its lesser well-received films. I mean, it won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. It did. What was it up against that year, though? Uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like Howl's Moving Castle. We'll fact check it really quick. But yes, uh, we, we this was an utter joy to watch. Um, and it was interesting because I know I walked into watching this movie saying like, well, you know, maybe this one didn't age as well because I missed something. You know, like maybe I loved it. And there are certainly moments that aren't as good as other moments, but I'm a huge Brad Bird fan and he's the director. He did The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, uh, this, and he ended up doing... Uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. 2007? Well. Yeah. Um, Happy Feet won the animated film Wait, that year. Wait, it beat Ratatouille? Oh, wow. I have been relegated to being wrong. Well, well, he's verifying my facts, just to be safe. I um, am. Ratatouille is one of those films that I own on several formats and have watched so many times I can quote major pieces of the film. Um, it's it's just one of those movies that, funny enough, actually, um, I saw, obviously, in theaters when it first came out. And even though I've had a lifelong fascination with critters, um, it inspired me to become a rat owner myself. Um, and it's, it's always been this really fundamental message in the back of my mind about um, how I look at art and creating and, and what it means to be... An artist in a lot of ways. It, it's a movie that really helped solidify kind of more of a practical approach that I had um, and less of like a, a dreamy kind of, you know, anything can happen if you try hard enough kind of thought. So it, it's nice because it's a movie that has a really beautiful moral but doesn't sugarcoat it really. Like, it, of course, there's a level of you have to suspend some belief. It is about a rat who knows how to cook. Yes. But at its core, it, it does take the consequences of, like, 
what it means to straddle the line between being a certain thing and wanting to be something else, and like what the actual repercussions of that action would be. Um, and it does it in a very educated way. And actually, we were talking a little during the movie um, about uh, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, which handles a similar subject, but for some reason, this movie seems to kind of get the humanity of it over that movie because Whiplash is largely a thriller. Yeah. Um, but I... this really, um, as artists and as critics as well, it speaks to us personally, and maybe that's why it's so lasting with us. Yeah. But it really does handle the friction between the community that you've made as an artist and the community that you are born to in your family and friends. Especially those of us who aren't so lucky as to be born into a family that understands that kind of thought. Um, Colby and I are both very lucky in that we came from households that were remarkably supportive of our creative pursuits, crazy though they at times may have seemed. Um, but we know all too many people who have to like, sometimes even hide that, that portion of their life and that style of their creativity because it just doesn't make sense to the people that they were raised by. Um, and, and it's true that this, this does handle that issue really beautifully. I mean, and even in Whiplash, I don't think it comes to quite that big a head because while there is the great scene where his family kind of does, like, question, like, oh, you're still drumming, in Whiplash, his family kind of knows, like, that he's taking it seriously. And in Ratatouille, it's always, like, why, like, you can't take it seriously, so why are you trying? It is the central conflict, which is very cool to see it become towards the end because towards the middle you forget that that was initially what was set out um i do want to add that ratatouille did win best animated feature but because it was in the 2008 academy uh, awards because I it wraps up to around 2007 yes goodness goodness so for those who don't know um ratatouille is <laughs> it is a pixar movie that is about a rat named remy voiced by Patton oswald who has this remarkably unnatural ability, like, he has this great sense of smell, really, that allows him um, to see the side of food um, and flavor. And through his kind of curiosities, he starts watching TV in this pastoral French farmhouse, and he stumbles upon a chef named Gusteau. And Gusteau is kind of this, like, all-encompassing, great, famous French chef who lives by the motto, anyone can cook. And Remy takes that to heart and kind of, while we're living as a rat in a field in France, tries to, like, convince his rat family to, like, stop eating trash and consider eating, like, good food. Um, and through hijinks and um, getting found out by the people, the people who live in the house that they live in. Um, Namely an old grandma. With, <laughs> with a shotgun. A, with a shotgun and poison gas ready at any moment to exterminate rats. Yeah. Who loves to leave the TV on and fall asleep, um... With the exception, she kind of discovers them and forces them out of their home, and Remy gets separated from his family and ends up alone in the middle of Paris. And, again, through hijinks, finds himself associated with Alfredo Linguini. <laughs> um, the illegitimate and, for most of the film, unknown son of Chef Gusteau, um, who has gotten a job at the restaurant as a garbage boy and who Remy helps kind of teach to cook in a roundabout way. Um, and through kind of cooking together, um, they both kind of learn a lot about 
being artists and what it means to be a creator and all that fun stuff. Um, it's not your run-of-the-mill pitch. It's really not. It's, it's very Pixar in that aesthetic. We we kind of figured that it must have been a pitch meeting where someone was like, what if there was a rat in the kitchen, but he was the cook? Yeah, exactly. I love looking for ways to boil down movies to pitches like that. Um, and I think that this movie thrives when it's about the relationship between Linguini and Remy. And you even pointed this out. The scenes where Remy doesn't speak are the ones that really are just wonderful, wonderful moments. Yeah. And uh, Remy is voiced by Patton Oswalt, who I actually really love Patton Oswalt. But um, I think that when we see him with his family at the very beginning and when like these conflicts are coming to a head towards the end of the second act, uh, those are the scenes that I kind of tune out. Because yeah. everything else is so great. Yeah, and that's not to say Patton Oswalt does a bad job. I think that it's just the structure the movie decided to take. Um, it, it The way that it's kind of set up is you get the, the introduction to the movie, the first, like, 20 minutes or so, is kind of introducing you to Remy and his family and, like, how rat society works. And all of the rats obviously talk and have, like, personalities. And then... It kind of switches when they get they get you know forced out of the house and Remy gets separated because when Remy's alone, we hear him talk through himself and then he speaks to the ghost of Gusto sometimes. But when Remy is in the presence of other humans, he doesn't speak at all. He's just treated as an animal would be like a rat. Um, and it, it, those are the scenes that, admittedly, like a good 80-75% of the movie is made of, are these scenes where Remy is just an object that can nod or shake his head, but doesn't actually speak. Um, and it feels like you get the most development out of those scenes, but I understand the importance of having that moment to kind of hear Remy talk about himself, because it, it does add another dimension to like his characterization and what his aspirations and goals are and why he's frustrated being stuck with like his rat family. And, and I even said while we were watching it, I would challenge if I were going in to like be a script doctor, I'd say, can we remove the fact that Remy speaks? I know it's a kid's movie, an American kid's movie, yeah. no doubt. But um, I think everything they needed to tell was could be told without Remy the Rat speaking. Yeah. And not to say that Patton Oswalt isn't written well. In fact, I think some script doctor actually probably came in and inserted more of a conflict for his character. Yeah. Because other than him being like, I'm a rat, how can I work in a kitchen... There, there really aren't that big of problems. And they make that problem really big when they add the context of, like, who am I, a rat or a chef? Yeah. And he, he marries them both at the end. He's like, I am a rat and a chef. But I think all of that could have been told more simply and focused on what the movie really wanted to talk about, which was this restaurant, Gusteau's, in Paris. And we were even talking about this. When they first went into the restaurant, First, there's like a little lecture on who works where in the kitchen. Yes. Which it is helpful that Patton Oswalt gets to speak for that section. Yeah. But then there's a little action scene. And Brad Bird is so phenomenal at working in action scenes when you least expect them. And that's why he would be so good at Mission Impossible movies in the future. <laughs> um, there's this one action scene where Remy is trying to escape the restaurant but it keeps being like pulled in different directions and you learn the set of the kitchen where we spend probably about 80% of the movie like to a T and we even get to spend a little time 
in the restaurant ex- itself, rather. Yeah, and it, it's that kind of sequencing that makes it... Because this, this film has a huge scale, especially considering you're seeing it from the perspective of a rat. We, we had said really briefly when we first started, I, I had tried to kind of make the argument that it, the movie wasn't about Remy, it was about Linguini, um, and it's very much not. It was totally about Remy. Which puts in perspective the fact that you watch the whole movie through Remy's eyes. So you look at Paris, which is in and of itself a huge city, from a rat's perspective, and it puts everything else at this massive scale. So all of the places we visit, we spend time at the Seine, we spend time at the restaurant, in Linguini's apartment, in um, kind of the hovel that the rats live in. And it is really important to have kind of a common ground and for what we see, it's funny because you see Gusto's restaurant from two shots. You see it from the front where they have like the big sign and, and the Michelin stars. And you see it from the back where all of the chefs come in and out and where the kitchen is. And it's funny because the front face that you see is a huge building, like multiple stories. It's like this huge giant skyscraper style building. And from the back, it's like this tiny little cobblestone, barely like a driveway. And then just these tiny double doors. And that's all that you really, that's all we interact with is is the chef side of the building. And it's kind of a neat play on the perspective because that's the only door Remy ever goes through is the back. Yeah. And, and that's very true. And I think it's so interesting because this film feels so French. And when, like, and when I say French, like, I mean, like, actual French cinema, like, Jean-Luc Godard and like uh, Francois Truffaut and even even Amelie, you know, did, oh, you, yeah. did you ever see Amelie? I have. Um, it feels very much akin to that palette. In fact, it was the highest-grossing animated film in France when it came out. Um, and and these kind of they they show the touristy side very well, but they also really antiquate you with. I mean, Mike Giacchino's score, we'll talk about that more. Yes. He's one of my favorites, and, I, and I'm sure one of yours. Um, everything is very authentic. And I and this comes from someone who's taken a couple of French classes. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you see, I don't know, when you see a couple of, like, things that represent the French culture, this really does a great job of representing what the tourist eye does not see. In fact, they never once ascend the Eiffel Tower in this whole movie. And it does sit romantically on the horizon of very many shots. Um, but it's it's far away from where we are in Paris. Like, we, it actually is another way that it kind of asserts our set. Is that we're in Paris and the Eiffel Tower is present, but the Eiffel Tower is always on a horizon line and always far away. And Gusteau's is not in that central portion no. that's around the Eiffel Tower. It's on this kind of outskirt-style part of Paris um, and that's that's really helpful in tone because honestly in a lot of places you forget that you're in Paris like you know you're in France because of how eloquently the film kind of sets that tone but Paris comes with such a preconceived definition and you do kind of forget that when you're looking at it from the really close scope of a gourmet kitchen and that's just neat like, it's, yeah. it's cool that they managed to remove you from that expectation, despite making it abundantly clear that you are in Paris. Um, and you had mentioned, and it's funny because I always, I've said his name wrong my entire life. I say Michael Giacciano. 
And I know that's wrong. Michael Giacchino. <laughs> I will always say it wrong. I don't know why I just automatically say Giacciano, like, to make it as complicated as I possibly can. He probably, his last name pulls every trick in the Italian playbook to make it unpronounceable. But his, so this, as I've said before, this is one of my favorite movies. And when I was, when it first came out, um, this actually is what inspired my love of, like, French jazz and just jazz in general. And it's not a very jazzy soundtrack in that, like, it's not a lot of what you would expect from jazz, but it just makes use of so many things. Like, there's bassoon and woodblock and, like... Yeah, no, it's the, the orchestrations are very specific to every single sequence in this movie, which is something that someone like Hans Zimmer, who I have trash-talked all the time on this podcast, really doesn't do anymore. And Michael Giacchino can just kind of turn on a dime. And um, we were talking about this before. A lot of animated movies now use temp music, which is the director places music they'd like. And I think throughout this movie, it was mostly French jazz. Yeah. Like, and even even some like Sergei Gansbord and stuff like that, which I think Mike Giacchino really took to heart and really kind of made his own, I think, in a very original way. Yeah, and it, it shows in... All together, and we talked about Brad Bird's kind of chase sequences before and how remarkably well done they always are. And in this movie, I think there's five major, like, chase sequences. And they all are different. They, they have a different soundtrack to them. They all have different scores. But they all... There's two, like, major themes. And there's La Festin, which you hear a few times in different paces. And then there's the theme from In the Wall, which is what happens like, whenever he's a feral rat, quote-unquote, and whenever he cooks. And Lefestin is, like, overworld stuff. Like, yeah. Lefestin shows up when it's, like... It's kind of a victory theme. Yeah, it's, like, between people or, like, think, like when he's having exchanges directly with people. Um, and it's that's, like, that was the first time myself as an uneducated listener before we started, before I started hanging out with Colby in Excessive Amount and he started teaching me the ways. That was the first time I really registered, like, what thematic music was in that like you'd never if you're not listening for it you'll miss the fact that the themes get repeated it like very basically like they don't they just change in like pitch or like rhythm or yeah you know pace kind of thing. <laughs> um but but when you recognize it it just there's this depth to like recognizing it and like connecting it back immediately to another scene like my favorite example is um when remy first gets into paris he convinces himself to like go up to the surface. He's in a sewer, he doesn't know where he is. And he goes up to the surface and he ends up in this like apartment building. And he's running through the walls. And at one point he stops in an apartment because he smells food and he goes to eat a crumb of food and the ghost of Gusteau reminds him that he's not a thief, he's a chef. And that good food always comes to those who love to cook. And Remy kind of reluctantly agrees, shakes it off and goes back into the wall and leaves the food behind. And this great theme plays and then when he finally gets out of the apartment building, he ends up at Gusto's restaurant. And he's the, the interchange with him and um, Linguini happens, and he goes down to fix a soup that Linguini messed up. And as Remy starts adding ingredients to his pot and cooking, the same theme from the wall picks back up, but with more instruments and a faster pace. And it, it, it crescendos into this great, satisfactory moment where, like, you're right, good food comes to those who cook, and he didn't even get here to eat it. He's just here to cook. And it's just this cool 
I just love it. It's so good. It's so wonderfully integrated in, into this movie. And people at Pixar, particularly, I mean, John Lasseter fully understands the, uh, the importance of music on film. And I think that's what makes Pixar so far and away better than, you know, what Disney's been doing, even, even for the past few years. Even some of Pixar's lesser outings, like The Good Dinosaur, which I know oh. makes you well up at the mere mention. I, just as a side note, and I don't, we should probably do The Good Dinosaur, because nobody likes it. But, oh my god, The Good Dinosaur will never not make me cry at least three times. Minimum. <laughs> it's just, it's, it deserves better. I, I haven't seen it since I watched it on a plane, so I think that would be a good week. It would be a good week. Um, now that we've now that we've popped the Pixar cherry to <laughs> put it crassly. Um, so one thing to note when you watch this movie is uh, do not watch this movie on an empty stomach. Oh my goodness. Because we were like watching it and and we're going out to dinner for Carly's birthday. <laughs> um, and we were like, oh, we're gonna like save like our appetites, but they just talk about food in like the most romantic way and the way they prepare these dishes and you said it it's like a Miyazaki movie where everything is like glisteningly appetizing and I even I dug into Carly's red wine and <laughs> I'm actually currently finishing my second glass <laughs> as we do this podcast of course see so we, it, it is very much to be said like you're gonna get some really strong notes of like and I I have to say having watched this movie as much as I have I know there's a, the bottle of wine they drink in the office is a Chateau Latour uh, 47 <laughs> I believe um, or I believe a 47 is actually what Anton Ego orders when he has his uh, review we'll and get to Anton Ego I th this movie it does it and even in the beginning sequence um, when Remy's like explaining how flavors work he takes a bite of a strawberry and it plays this beautiful little rift with like this beautiful little colorful swirl. And then he takes a bite of cheese and it's a different rift with a different color swirl. And then he takes a bite of them together and the flavors and the sounds combine. And it's like that moment is a really good illustration that I've like carried through my life. It's like every time I take a bite of something, I imagine like the color and the sound. That's such an effective device. And honestly, it's because of this movie that I'm like, I want to taste this cheese. And it's, it's been a rocky road from there because now <laughs> I just eat cheese. Thanks, Ratatouille. And it teaches you really... And the other thing is it... And the kitchen sequences did this best. There's a, a whole, like, montage in, in the middle of the second act um, where Remy and Linguini are both kind of learning how to operate in a professional kitchen from Colette, who is an established chef in Gusto's Kitchen. And not only is it a cool way to kind of see... Like, to respect the fact that Remy has really raw natural talent, but is not a professional, and the environment they're in is a professional environment. But it's also really neat to see a professional teach someone, and Colette teaches great things, like, you know, the, the chef's position is to keep your arms close to your body because they're sharp things and hot plates, and you have to learn how to, you know, navigate and return back to that position to be safe, and how the mark of a good chef is a messy apron but clean sleeves, and... Things like the best way to tell bread is by the sound. Like, there's so many great moments that are focused on food as, like, a medium. Yes, absolutely. It, it makes you view food in such a new and exciting light. 
Uh, before we get too much into characters, characters, because I do want to talk about Colette and Anton Ego at a certain depth, and even Skinner. But um, I do want to mention, so one of the devices is a little absurd. Uh, how, Linguini, oh, how Linguini ends up cooking with Remy in tow, with Remy as his puppeteer, is literally just that. Remy tugs on Linguini's hair. From under his, his chef's toque. And uh, and then uh, Linguini kind of operates like a like a mannequin. Yeah, like a like, marionette. Like a marionette, exactly. And I think that it's an elegant solution to what I'm sure they must have been like. How are they going to accomplish this symbiosis? But um, it's definitely a leap. And I think there could have been other solutions, but if you kind of let it go, it's just fine. And despite the fact that it is, it is a leap, like it is a ridiculous thing, they do take the time to like figure it out with you on screen. Like the first time Remy and Linguini get on in the kitchen together, Remy's like in Linguini's coat, like just in his torso jacket and bites him to like direct him to certain things. And, and Linguini obviously gets really upset really quickly and like tells him that they can't operate that way. And only through an act of, like, emergency. Um, Linguini swoops Remy up under his hat when they're about to get caught and then walks blindly back into the kitchen and Remy, recognizing he's about to fall over something, pulls his hair and directs him back underneath without actually, like, communicating with him and it just reflexively worked. Um, and then there's a whole other sequence where the two of them practice how this kind of maneuvering would work. So it is ridiculous, but they do take the time to kind of, like take you through the process of like figuring out how it would work they made a series of rules and they stuck to them you yeah. know like they they're like well they have to practice it i think it was I, it must have been such a funny day at the <laughs> pixar studio when they're like so this is how they're gonna interact it's gonna be pulls his hair it's yeah. like Pacific Rim. It's like a Jaeger in it Pacific is. It's like Rim, a Jaeger. but it's a little rat on and a guy's head. And it's funny because that's exactly how Remy is animated. When he's in Linguini's hair, he holds like the same two clumps of hair, and he has like a little bit extra like in his hands. And yeah, he just does the exact same motions as if using, just like if if he was if his body was Linguini's body, he does the exact same thing. So it's it's kind of cute. Things like, I don't really know how he would get Linguini to walk forward. There's yeah. no feet maneuvering. It's all yeah. hands. But it, it, in a film about a rat that pilots a man to cook in a French kitchen, it's one of those things that you're just like, all right, well. Well, at least here. At least it is committed to by way of, like, a set of rules. Like, they establish it's ridiculous, but you know what? We're going <laughs> with, with it. It's going to happen. And you're going to ride along with us. Um, I do want to talk about the head chef of the restaurant, when Linguini and Remy arrive is Skinner, who is voiced by, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name, but he's Bilbo in Lord of the Rings. You know who I speak of. Um, let me actually find that. Ian Holm. Oh, that's right. Yep. He is a wonderfully, like, subtle villain because he's just funny to watch. He's no Jafar. He's no Ursula. You yeah, know? He, he takes, his, his mark as a villain is he takes Gusto's very, af like, very lovable and, and kind of marketable persona and does just that. He markets Gusto's memory. Um, Gusto has obviously died in the film. Um, and Skinner, being Gusto's sous chef, takes control of Gusto's company and uses Gusto as a logo for a series of um, frozen foods. They make a comparison to Chef Boyardee. Yeah. And it's, 
it, it is that they may they make him chef boyardee yeah and I, obviously the chefs in the kitchen who like respected gusto are kind of upset about it because you're essentially you know you're selling out gusto's memory and his legacy for like frozen burritos um but i mean by way of a villain all Skin- he, skinner's not doing anything wrong he's just using a good opportunity to make a quick buck and then he's uh, like, he also finds out that Linguini is Gusto's illegitimate son, and he like covers it up. And then he also is the sole person who starts to notice Linguini is weirdly interacting with this rat all the time. And there's this Looney Tunes sequence where he just keeps seeing Remy. He keeps seeing the rat, and then like he'll blink, and then it'll be gone. And he thinks he's going crazy. It's so funny. And they treat him like he loses. In, like before the finale of the film, Skinner loses. Skinner, the, the rat, Skinner encounters the rat face to face, finally affirming that like he was right the whole time, but the rat has stolen documents and then rats Linguini out and admit, you know, the control of the restaurant switches to Gusto's son instead of Skinner. Skinner loses everything. And Skinner has to live with this knowledge that, like, this rat is controlling the strings and he can do nothing about it. It's it's humor that really is very inventive. And that's one of those crazy action sequences we were talking about. They have a boat chase on the Seine between <laughs> this rat and this little chef man. He's so funny. His character design just makes me giggle thinking about it. And the other villain in the film, who also turns out to not be really much of a villain, is the absolutely flawless... <laughs> Anton Ego. When she says flawless, imagine Tim Burton spindly characters. He is this beautiful... Altogether, I swear, he must get like five minutes of screen time. He's not in the film very much, but he is this this om, like omnipotent, dangerous, like highly critical, constantly negative, powerful critic who reviewed Gusto's restaurant cost Gusto his first Michelin star, and then shortly thereafter, Gusto dies. So, like, he's played up as this, like, I think they call him the Grim Eater, is his, like, tagline. His office is in the shape of a coffin. He types on, like, a skeleton keyboard. He's the best. It's And he taught, who's his voice actor? I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Um, oh my, O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Um, and he just, he's this gravelly... It just, oh my god, everything about him is well-designed, well-delivered, and because he's in the film for such a limited amount of screen time, he's scary in a way. He's yes. very, very imposing. And at the end of the film, he actually issues a challenge to the new Gusto, to Linguini, and says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back and review Gusto's. And his arc is almost the best. In the whole film. And, and if you saw this movie, you remember Ego at the end. That's, like, what you recall. He he sits down in this, this very affluent, obviously, gourmet restaurant and issues a challenge of feed me whatever you dare to serve me. And Remy, the rat, decides to cook him ratatouille, which is a, a vegetable stew. Yeah. Which is not what you would serve as a main course in a gourmet restaurant. They call it a peasant dish. Yeah, it's it's very much like, it's it wouldn't be expensive, it wouldn't be hard to cook. And yet they serve it to Ego, and Ego laughs a little bit. 
and then takes a bite and is like immediately shot back to his childhood and and all of his like life decisions like wash over him and he he just enjoys his meal which is something that he hasn't done in a very long time and then chooses to wait until the restaurant closes to meet the chef which at this point in the film um Linguini and Colette have kind of agreed mutually that credit belongs to Remy. They both know the rat is the one doing the cooking and that he deserves the credit for the meal. Um, and Ego stays, meets Remy, listens to the whole explanation, watches them cook, and then leaves. And then writes his review. Which become, and truthfully has become like a mantra in my own creative career. Um, but writes this really beautiful review, which is played as a voiceover over the end of the movie. When they solve all the problems. They show Remy making these decisions and coming to terms with who he is yeah. as an artist and a rat. He chooses not to go with Linguini or with his family, but walks off on his own to go through Paris while he thinks kind of thing. And, and over that, that sequence, Ego is reading his, his critique and... In essence, and I truly, truly recommend you sit down in, like, a quiet space and just listen to the review itself and, like, hear his monologue because it's it's truly beautiful. But at its core, it's about the fact that um, the, the phrase anyone can cook doesn't mean anyone can do it. It just means that greatness can come from anyone and that, you know, it, it's not... It's not a pay-to-win kind of game. Anybody has access to the same amount of skills. It's just doing it and, and kind of coming to realize that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. You, you are capable of greatness. And his realization happens organically through this kind of monologue and, and through his, his character arc. He's been portrayed as this really dark, grim, serious character, and then this one experience has completely changed his perspective. And... It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to kind of wrap up. I have no flaw with anything to do with the last 10, 20 minutes of this movie. And honestly, the glow you get after watching this is just unprecedented. Which and is, is, it's funny because the movie doesn't tip, like, necessarily end on a happy note. Gusto's closes. No, yeah, because they, they have a health inspector come and he sees he sees all these rats. rats cooking and yeah gusto's the movie that we've spent this whole movie like romanticizing and then defending ends up closing and linguini loses his empire and and all of the credibility goes away uh, ego who took a risk to like you know praise the restaurant's new chef loses all of his credibility as a critic and ruins his career and yet the end of the movie ends with all of them having come together and open a new bistro. Yeah. Called Ratatouille. Called Ratatouille. <laughs> La Ratatouille. La Ratatouille, I'm sorry. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful ending. And they even, like, pull in, they pull in all of, like, these loyal characters. And I do want to talk a little bit about Colette. Yes. Because when I watched this movie today, I didn't think I was going to dwell with Colette as much as I did. Um, but she is such a well-rounded character. She's another chef at the beginning of the movie. She's hard. She's cynical. But because of the events of the movie, she learns. She's the one who kind of knows all of the tricks of the trade. Like, she's been working her whole life. But then with uh, Remy's unmitigated talent at her disposal, she kind of learns and comes to terms with herself as a chef. 
because she always followed the recipe to a T and never would improvise and just make what she knew was good. Yeah. And I love that little arc. And um, at the end, it's it's because Colette, Anton, Ego, Linguini, and Remy, and Remy's family are all in com- combined forces, rather, that uh, they kind of come to the realization that sometimes you weren't meant for exactly what you thought was the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. You find what your exact niche as an artist is, and you need to be, uh, like, without, without like, worry about what other people think. Yeah, and, and every experience informs you into getting to the right place. I mean, Colette, obviously, her, her aspiration was to work in Gusto's kitchen, and she achieved it and was defending her position with, with ferocity when Linguini appeared in the kitchen and kind of threatened her for it. Um, so her peak was being in Gusto's kitchen, and when actually Remy is first revealed, Colette and all of the chefs who worked for Gusto walk out. They they refuse to be associated with a rat in Gusto's kitchen, and and frankly, I think take it as a bit of an insult that you would even assume a rat would be on their level by way of cooking. Um, but Colette comes back, and I think because she values Gusto's name so much, she still wants to be a part of defending it, but. Even so, like, getting to be a part of that major moment in the restaurant's history and having Antonigo return and to give him a good, you know, meal to have, she's she's kind of in this position of, like, this is what she's worked her whole life to get. And despite the fact that the review goes excellent and Antonigo writes them a beautiful review, the restaurant still shuts its doors. And she falls from that position of, like, what she had aspired to be but it ends up putting her in where she was meant to end up, which is running, for my best guess, running the restaurant alongside Remy as the head chef in this new little bistro. And that's what's so funny, because Linguini has no actual skills in the kitchen, it (laughs) ends up just being this woman and this rat running this kitchen. (laughs) And, And I love that ending so much. It's, it's a beautiful story that, that's really multidimensional in, like, how it approaches. Because there's a lot of different parts in the movie where you think that's where the conflict is going to fall. And the major conflict, the actual, like, end game doesn't happen until really late. Um, and, and you do. You kind of go back and forth between thinking, like, how is Remy going to be a rat? Is he going to just go back to being a rat? Like, what is he going to... And... It's 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 a delicate balance to keep you invested in both sides of it, but the movie does it really well. It's just really easy to watch, and it's, yes, it's very very. It it does. It makes you feel kind of warm. You kind of glow at the end of it. It's it's uh, not just a movie. It's very much a feeling as well. Yeah. And I often consider this movie on the ranks with uh, Wall-E and Up, which came out each consecutively a year after this. Yep. Most people praise Pixar for their early stuff, but I think that the those three movies are really the, the peak of what the studio has done. And it, both through their animation capabilities and because of the storytelling. I mean, it's a very tight story. Be- yeah. Once you get past the fact that it's a rat who's piloting a man by his hair, <laughs> it's a really tight plot. Um, and we don't talk much about the animation because Pixar has kind of... They, they don't really push limits too much. I will say that with Up and... I mean, they don't push limits, but they, they know what it's like to tell a stylized story. Yes. Remy and all the rats and the, the characters in, in Ratatouille would not fit in Up. No. And, it's be, and even those two stories, despite having kind of cultural connections, don't really have styles. They just have 
just overall kind of palettes and, and shapes that reappear a lot. Exactly. A lot of the characters in, in Ratatouille are gangly. Um, where a lot of the characters in Up are kind of squat and round or square. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just general silhouetting that really helps define kind of, like, just the overall aesthetic of the movie. And, and they're very good at it. Um, they, they always use their engines to the fullest capability kind of thing. Um, and, and Ratatouille is certainly no exception. Um, Ratatouille also does a really great job with muted palettes. The color mm. in Ratatouille is always kind of monotone. In the city during the day, there's a lot of like oranges and yellows, and in the city at night, there's a lot of purples and blues, but it's never really super bright or super dark. It's just this really great kind of, not sepia-toned, but like not highly saturated. Yeah. And it feels kind of rustic, but also kind of like realistic in a sense. It's it's not this bright, colorful, touristy world. It's just kind of this space. And it's it's nice because it doesn't overwhelm you at all, and it, it makes it really easy to feel at home in the area. You you love Paris in this movie. Like this when you watch this movie, you say to yourself, Oh man, when can I go to Paris? This, this is what they talk about. This you know? is the Paris that yeah, I'd want to go to. Not not the bustling like metropolis, but like this really quiet cobblestone, sun soaked streets. Everybody rides a bike just because like the streets are tight. Like that's that's the romanticized version that I've I've kind of coveted, and I think it's because I saw Ratatouille <laughs> in two thousand seven. Um, so yes, my birthday treat this year was getting to to indulge myself a little bit in one of my favorites, and one of my favorites too, to be frank. Yes. So this didn't hurt me that much either. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. This is Colby Herschel and Carly Sheehan Drum signing off. Oh,